0: Welcome to the story of XH558, Into the Sky. So good afternoon, Robert. How are you? Good afternoon, Martin. I'm really well, thank you. Very good. Uh, just for the purpose of the recording, of course, I'm speaking to Dr. Robert Plemming, who's the Chief Executive uh, of the Vulcan to the Sky Trust, also Chairman of the Aviation Heritage uh, UK. And um, We're here to talk about uh, 558 and, uh, of course, why we brought it back into the sky. Um, so, first and foremost, Robert, I think maybe what might be a helpful thing is, maybe if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your interest in aviation. Of
1: course, it goes back a long way. At school, I was in the RAF section of the cadet force and I applied for a flying scholarship to the Royal Air Force and indeed was awarded one. So at the age of 17, I was pottering around the skies of Bedfordshire in a Cessna 152 and caught the bug about flying. My career didn't go in that direction. Uh, Actually, I ended up, going to university and doing some research. I have a, uh, a doctorate from the nuclear physics lab at Oxford, which took me down the direction of computing, joined IBM. Then, whilst I was in IBM, I did spend a bit of time in the United States and discovered how cheap flying was over there because uh, I couldn't afford, with a family, I couldn't afford to fly in the UK. So every now and then... I went up with an instructor in the US and kept my hand in. In between times, as most people who have caught the bug about flying, I used to go to air shows. My favourite aeroplane of all time was, of course, the Vulcan. I was one of the people who signed the petition in 1992 to keep 558 flying, Uh, but as you know, uh, it wasn't to be. It was grounded in 1993. Uh, But Over the time, I'd got a friend, a very good friend, who was a Vulcan pilot in the RAF. And he told me what the aircraft was like to fly and really built up an amazing picture in my head. Uh, And I started reading books about the Vulcan. And it occurred to me what a very important aircraft this was in terms of the engineering side of it. It was a, a real step change in aircraft design And that's the first reason why I felt it was important to return the aircraft to flight, because it was such an important aircraft from an engineering (laughs) viewpoint. The second major aspect to this is what it means in terms of heritage, Cold War history, and telling the story of those uh, dark times during the 50s, 60s, 70s. I felt quite strongly that, we should be telling the current generation about that history in order that we didn't make the same mistakes again.
0: So so, it, so what you what you're saying is that your your interest has stemmed obviously from your boyhood of the fact that like well, like myself as well, I'm a bit of an aviation geek. I'll tell you that one now, um, which, you know, because we met a few times in the hangar. But for you, really, this has come more from the engineering side of things rather from than from the flight side of things. Am I, am I correct in, in that statement?
1: Yes, sir, that that would be right. I, um, I did, did have an engineering career in computing with IBM and then Cisco Systems. I was what you class, I suppose, as a... Uh, A technical manager, Uh, I knew how to run projects, I knew about risk, all those aspects which make up um, for successful engineering projects, Uh, which is why um, in 1997, uh, when I spoke to David Walton, uh, I felt pretty confident that I would be able to see whether or not it was feasible to return the aircraft to flight. And that's all that we were aiming for at, at that stage. So you're right. It's I came from it uh, to it from an engineering viewpoint, although obviously with an aviation uh, enthusiasm. Just mention one other reason why I felt it was important to return the aircraft to flight, and that's the public support. Uh, the aircraft was hugely loved, is hugely loved by the public. Two hundred thousand people signed the petition in 1992, uh, and I felt that with that sort of strong public support. We had every chance of being successful, and so those are the three reasons: engineering, Cold War heritage, and public support. Right, that's why we so, did it.
0: And, and just another little thing, because obviously, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I volunteer when uh, you know, around uh, five five eight myself. Uh, so obviously, I get to hear lots of different things. One of the things I did here. Uh, and maybe you can tell us whether this is right or not. And if it is, maybe you'd like to put your spin on it. It's a little story about you used to, you were watching um, 558 when uh, she was doing the fast taxi runs at Bruntonville. You was with your friend who was a Vulcan pilot. And um, I think you two had a little bet going on. Am I right? Or, or is that is that just a, a, another one of the myths of the Vulcan?
1: Oh, yes. There are some myths, there are also some truths. But yes, my friend Angus Laird did notionally bet me that I'd never get it done. But he was there with me on first flight, and he cracked open a bottle of champagne at the time.
0: Really? Because I heard it was a pint of beer. Uh, it, well, it was, yes.
1: <laughs> it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't significant, but it was uh, taken in good humour, let me put it like that. Excellent. I remember... So- one other story which is, is worth mentioning, in, uh, on the 23rd of March, 1993, the final flight in RAF service, I took my son out of school uh, and we sat on a, a hill near to RAF Benson, which is the initial point for the final tour for 558 before she landed at Bruntingthorpe. And I remember promising myself I'd do everything I could to return the aircraft to flight that was in 1993. Of course, it wasn't until four years later did I actually start down the path. But its uh, it's been quite a story. There is a book in it. At the moment, I don't have the time to write it
0: right um well looking at uh your linkedin profile i'm not surprised you seem to have that many projects on the go at the moment like i said i mentioned that you're chairman of the aviation heritage uk i saw that you co-chair on another organization as well to be honest with you i run out of paper i just didn't have enough <laughs> space to write down everything that you're doing so yeah you do appear to be quite a busy man at this moment uh,
1: i have great trouble saying no I
0: suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it's one or two of us are maybe a little bit like that as well so obviously the passion's there you've, you, you've grown up with the passion you, like a lot of other people you've fallen in love with the, the Vulcan you've just told us that lovely little story about your son and sitting there and thinking I'm going to do everything I can to get one of these things back up in the end and credit to you, you you've, you've managed to achieve that. Um, so you approached Dave because I was I'm sorry, just backtrack a bit here. The Vulcan was uh, grounded in ninety three, retired from uh, from RAF service because he was then in the Vulcan uh, display team, wasn't it? The five five eight was the only member of the Vulcan display team.
1: Yep, the Vulcan display uh, flight. That's right.
0: Yeah, um, she lands in Bruntingthorpe in ninety three. The guys at Bruntingthorpe obviously keeping it in. Uh, good condition for fast taxis. You're at the side there. Was it 97 that you was with your friend? Uh, when 96, tax-
1: 97, um, yeah. that, that's correct. Um, prior to that, David Walton had presented a proposal to the CAA to see whether or not they'd buy into what he was suggesting to return to the aircraft to flight, but it didn't have the corporate support that the CAA were looking for, that's what I eventually um, brought in, because the whole aim of the two or three years to 1999 was to get together a project plan that would be accepted by British Aerospace, as was BAA Systems, as is now, um, as a practical way to return the aircraft to flight that could demar- that could gather their support for that goal because even at the time the the key thing in the Civil Aviation Authority um, regulations was that the original designer needed to provide uh, ongoing airworthiness design support and that, that, that was the key thing if we hadn't got that from British Aerospace we would never have been able to fly.
0: Right, because there was was major people, major manufacturers that were eventually involved in the the upkeep of, uh, of of course, 558. Um, And and again, just stepping back to 97 when you approached Dave Walton about the feasibility study you were going to do on 558 to see if we could return her back to air. I mean, this is obviously not a matter of just walking around the aircraft with a clipboard going, yep, that's okay, that looks okay. It's obviously you need some major experts to do a feasibility report and it it can't be something that can be done in an afternoon. So, so what, what, who did you get involved in in the first um, instance and how long did it take to do this
1: feasibility study? Of course. um, Very good point. One thing I should mention, which made the project feasible was that after David Walton bought 558 for the princely sum of 25,000 pounds, he then spent another £100,000 buying all the RAF's spares. And that was absolutely vital, principally because within those spares, there were eight zero-time Olympus engines. Without those, we wouldn't have been able to fly. So a big hats off to David and the Walton family for taking the prescient action of buying the spares. But yeah, um, after BA Systems gave us the, yes, we'll support it, letter in May of 99, uh, we held a project definition workshop with members of the design team from BAA Systems, but also from Marshall Aerospace. And that defined, firstly, the technical survey that we would need to do on the aircraft to determine whether or not in practical terms she could be returned to flight remember all of this was theory up till this point point. and secondly what the scope of the servicing activity would be needed to return the aircraft to air, airworthiness so a very important set of activities uh, and that was in 99 and the technical survey took a couple of months in the last part of the year And ended in March 2000 when everybody got back together again uh, for the full teams and worked on the decision, would it be feasible to return 558 to flight? And the answer, as you all know, was yes, it would. There was nothing fundamentally wrong with the airplane that would be incredibly expensive to fix, for example, cracked spars or something similar. Mm -hmm. And so... Um that was the point at which we felt, yep, we've got a chance of this actually happening. And after that it was a matter of raising the money. Because...
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so at that point when it came back and said yes, yet yeah, she can fly provided you know that all these these points are you know are satisfied, you must have felt absolutely elated.
1: Uh I did. Um up until that decision in March of 2000 it was all very much a theoretical exercise Um, that that led me to a major career decision I was uh, one of the technical directors in Europe at Cisco Systems at the time and I had to decide do I carry on with Cisco or do I resign and pick this up full-time and I put myself four or five years in the future and asked myself whether or not I'd regret not picking up and running with the Vulcan project. Uh, it was a no-brainer, and that's exactly what I did. In April of 2000, I resigned from Cisco. Everybody thought I was mad and picked the project up uh, full-time. And at the time, because of uh, the, the rewards that Cisco gave me, I, I, I was uh, funding myself and the family, off what we managed to save, so it was a couple of years of um, not receiving a salary, which again was a bit brave, really. But um, it's what you had to do to make it happen.
0: Well, yeah, and uh, yeah, and and, and and hats off to you as well, mate. I mean, that is a massive decision, especially when you've got a family as well. So obviously, we've got you've got the go ahead now. Uh, you know, five five eight is fine to fly, provided all the points are met. We know that one of the biggest obstacles you can have of course is financing it that is going to be a struggle. but what was the other biggest obstacle that you had in getting a five five eight back in the air
1: in in terms of technical challenge, we did over time have some fairly expensive setbacks a couple of examples the flying control surfaces are are quite finely balanced you can move them very easily with just a couple of fingers, but they're made of magnesium alloy. And when we opened them up, basically we found the, uh, the effect of years' worth of it sitting out in the wet, massive amount of corrosion. So instead of uh, what we thought was going to be a, uh, a relatively easy piece of servicing work, we actually ended up having the flying control surfaces being completely rebuilt uh, in... Imperial measure Imperial units uh, material which had to be uh, brought in from America. it was really a very expensive additional task that we hadn't uh, reckoned with. Uh, another example was on the aircraft the undercarriage bays have a full ceiling there's a uh, basically a, a metal sheet at the in the roof of the undercarriage bay uh, and then you're into the aircraft wing structure. And when we took a look underneath that metal plate, or above as it should be, um, we discovered something that was pretty obvious, that the uh, water from the wheels landing on uh, runways has got into the area above the ceiling of the undercarriage bay and a massive amount of corrosion. And it took a team of six fitters about six weeks full time to rectify that corrosion. Again, a a pretty big hit. We did have amazing amounts of help, though. Uh, The work that was done on some of the systems, uh, for example, the chassis-mounted fuel systems on the engines, various motors, the AAPP, they were all reconditioned by Goodrich, which must have cost seven figures easily. And they did that all for free. Wow. the extraordinary thing is Goodrich is an American company. So you had a British Heritage aircraft being supported by an American company, which is fantastic. The other Mm. challenge was the undercarriage. Uh, This was originally Doughty. By this time, it was owned by a French company, Messier Doughty. We needed their approval to use the undercarriage. The undercarriages were airworthy. The challenge was persuading a French company to support a British heritage project. And it was only when they got embarrassed when every other manufacturer had agreed to support it, did they come on
0: board. But that was a difficult time as well. So it's fair to say that you had multiple challenges then. Obviously, the financing was was a a major thing in itself. I mean, I've read reports that it was initially an estimated cost of three and a half million to bring it back to flight. Is that correct?
1: Originally, originally, when we'd uh, our first estimate just after we got the go ahead was about one and three quarter million. Uh, but as is the case, I think, with every aviation project I've ever known, it costs far more than you ever thought in the first place. Uh, by the time we got to permit to fly, we'd spent over seven million quid.
0: Wow. Wow, so that was, was about six times the amount of the original estimate estimated cost then. Something like that, yes. Yeah. Blimey. Now I also read as well because obviously the the financing of it was the the big thing. Obviously the challenge is the parts. Thankfully, David Walton bought. Uh, I can't remember now, but it's quite a quite a lot of spare parts.
1: Eight hundred tons.
0: Eight hundred tons. Okay, blimey. You know, thankfully, you got all that that equipment there, you, you just told us about the corrosion, etc. One of the other setbacks that I, I read about, that I do know about, of course, was you, you got turned down by the Heritage Lottery Fund, didn't you?
1: Yes, um, this is an interesting story. We, we were being helped out by an experienced fundraiser, uh, Felicity Irwin, at the time. And we felt there was a justification for the Heritage Lottery Fund, to assist with funding the project, especially because we discovered that the Lottery Fund had given a grant to the restoration of a German tank at the Tank Museum to working order. And we thought, well, if they can do that, surely they can support an aircraft project. Uh, We then discovered that projects whose aim is the restoration of aircraft to flight are explicitly uh, excluded from their grant funding. So I felt that that was something we should challenge, and indeed spotted on the lottery funds policy uh, description that they would accept cases for exceptions to policy. So we attacked this uh, with a a, a purpose-written case for this aircraft to be returned to flight. And you're right, the first application was turned down by the Lottery Fund in December 2002. And what was extraordinary was the reaction from the public to the decision. The Lottery Fund received Hundreds of emails, letters, telephone calls saying that they'd made the wrong decision and it was really important the aircraft should fly and they really should support it. And it it shot them into meeting up with us pretty rapidly and telling us what we needed to do for an application in an application that had a greater chance of success. And that's what we did. I spent something like three months in. Second quarter of 2003, generating a new application covering all of the aspects that uh, the lottery fund suggested we should look at. Uh, We submitted that, and then in uh, December 2003, we got the decision the positive decision that they would give us what was known as a stage one pass, but it really was the green light for lottery funding for the project and of course that major contribution made the whole thing real i just point out a couple of things about that decision at the same lottery fund board meeting they decided to give funding to the new or they proposed national cold war exhibition and in the lottery fund's mind we would, the Vulcan would be in essentially the uh, part of the cold war messaging that was viewed as important at the time. The other thing that you may want to recall is that it was also about the time when Concord was finally grounded. And mm. all of this came together to, I think, put the the, the the right circumstances for them to give us a positive decision.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I was reading that it was actually a friend that offered you some advice, but on listening to what you say in there, Thankfully, it was, well, well, whoever gave you the advice, but the lottery funding people actually showed you what to do, which is great because obviously then, as you said, they gave you the, did you say the stage one? Uh, to yes, it's
1: called a stage one pass. It basically means that the project can advance to collecting the, gathering up the matched funding you need alongside the lottery fund grant, but also there's an enormous amount of paperwork that goes with these things. The next year or so was spent doing... Paperwork, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I suppose as a fundraiser, this is what you've got to do, mate. You know, you get, you've got to get it going, haven't you? And, uh, yeah, it sounds like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we're, So just to give people a, 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 an idea of the timescale, right? So 93, she's grounded. Uh, you've been watching her, and then you approach um, David Walton, ninety-seven. We're now up to two thousand and three here, where you've gone through everything that you've gone through. Yep. Um, so we're up to six years. Sorry, ten years after she was first grounded. She first yep. landed at Bruntingthorpe, and you've only just sort of secured sufficient funding and got that first. Step as it were towards getting it back on, back in the air. Am I, am I right in what I'm saying there?
1: Yeah, roughly. I might have got the dates a little bit wrong, but they're roughly in the right order anyway. <laughs>
0: right, right. So, so it's it's interesting you should say because my next question was going to be: What what do you think makes XH five five eight so special, and what, what what makes us loved by the public? Because you mentioned there about you know the, the lottery fund had was put under enormous pressure. By writing in, messaging, whatever they were doing to make them change their mind to help you get 558 back in, in the air. I mean, what is it you think that makes 558 that so special that people want to see her in the air?
1: They do. Uh, I, th- I think it's the, the beautiful shape, firstly. She is a stunning aircraft to see flying. Secondly, the power that she exudes. Uh, obviously, enormously noisy, but it, it's it's a quite a quite a feeling when you see her take off. It's a really extraordinary feeling of power you get. She's immensely nimble in the air. The huge flying control surfaces make it make her uh, very manoeuvrable. I think it's those factors which uh, uh, generate the affection that people have for the aircraft.
0: Well, I have to I have to agree with you on that. She yeah she is an absolutely beautiful shape and uh, yeah I, I've been a fan of her myself for many years. So uh, yeah, I I have to I have to go with that one. And so moving on a little bit in years here. So um, you know, two thousand and six, she comes out and does a brief appearance for a, a PR event um, to let people know that obviously you're moving on with it. Things are going in the right direction. Uh, two thousand and seven. She returns to the sky for, I think it was for a test flight for the CAA. Again, I'm it, right, was, am I?
1: it was the first test flight that was um, witnessed by the Civil Area Authority and um, a, a small group, probably about 150, 200 people at the airfield. But about three or four thousand in the fields around the airfield. <laughs>
0: So um yeah so we, we were talking there uh, about you know 558 returning to the skies 2007 14 years after she was you know retired from the RAF um, it was a test flight for the CAA and obviously you would have been there on that day
1: Absolutely would it was a perfect day it was one of these crisp bright october days um, it couldn't have been better yeah, the test flight was about half an hour or so. Um, went they went off to the east of the country. Some gentle manoeuvres. They cycled the undercarriage a number of times. All went extremely well. And then uh, uh, after landing, we weren't flying again until the following spring because hmm. uh, it wasn't uh, the conditions would have be wouldn't have been conducive. But there were about three or four other test flights because. Um, As you may realize, the Vulcan XH558 is pretty, pretty much totally original. The only thing we had to change on the aircraft was the avionics to comply with the current air navigation order. And the avionics required new aerials and the like and did need to be tested. So the further test flights were all done with the aim of checking out Uh, the new avionics.
0: Mm. Now, did you feel that day when you saw her back in the air again, bearing in mind that you were saying that you sat, uh, sorry, I forgot the year, but you were sat with your son. 93. 93. Yeah. You sat with your son.
1: My son was there for first flight as well.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: It's a joy, relief, exhaustion. (laughs) So (laughs) so many emotions. But it was, uh, I have to say it was a massive team effort. It wasn't, one man, it was – I happened to just be the leader. But we had contributions from literally hundreds of people, not only our own team, Marshall Aerospace, but all the manufacturers and suppliers around the country. It was huge.
0: So, actually, it's funny you should mention that about uh, about the team, you know, because, you know, I've being around the hangar, we had the regular crew there, you know, the, the guys that Taff and the guys that looked after uh, five five eight. a Yep. Was that the original crew, or that that the you brought in to help maintain it, to to restore it, or as it as the crew changed over the years?
1: And a number, and there has been some evolution, yes, over over time. The the team we did have looking after the five five eight in the hangar did comprise of members of the original team plus plus others. Of course, we're now uh, in a situation where. We've had to sadly say goodbye to quite a number of those team. Taff is still around; he's the crew chief, and we have a a very strong volunteer team of engineers who look after 558 right now.
0: And good team they are as well. Yeah, oh, absolutely! Do, do an excellent job of looking after. Uh, where- so we'll move on a little bit further. Obviously, we've got her back into the air. Uh, sorry, i refresh that. You, the team, have got her back in the air. You know, you, you've got, and she's 2008, I think it was, when she went to Waddington to do her first displays and the Royal, the React. Unfortunately, I think the React was cancelled due to weather that year, if I remember yeah. rightly. And then, of course, the time comes when you've got to find a permanent home for her. And uh, 2011 comes and she moves up to Robin Hood Airport. Now, I know from looking at social media myself, there's been a lot of outcries. Oh, why can't you go back to brooding throat? da that all that. Maybe you could just throw a bit of light on the subject.
1: Decision on where we would base five, five, Eight once she stopped flying is obviously absolutely crucial, was absolutely crucial, because once you've dropped her in somewhere, you're not going to be able to move her again. And what we were looking for, for was assurance that we had a very long... Uh, future ahead of us, wherever we left, uh, we landed for the last time. As part of the Heritage Lottery Fund contract, we have to deliver public benefits based around 558 for some 80 years from the start of the contract. And uh, what we needed to do was find a place where we were pretty much assured that it'd still exist, and uh, that by the time we finished flying, about 65 years' time. Now, we looked at a number of options. There are only a few aviation museum sites which have runways. Um, Most of them don't now. Uh, The ones we homed in on were Elvington. Uh, We also looked at Bruntingthorpe and Doncaster. Difficult decisions, these, but we were aware at Elvington there would be no space that we could construct a, a hangar for her and we desperately needed to make sure that she was hanged wherever she went also we were aware that there was a is still a proposal to turn that site into housing and that still seems to be the general long term plan there which would of course remove the ability to taxi aircraft, indeed, I understand that the live aircraft at Elvington are now no longer able to taxi uh, on the runway. Uh, so that that ended up uh, being shut down as an option. Uh, Bruntingthorpe, a uh, privately owned airfield, family firm, and you just don't know how a family is going to develop, whether or not the sons grandsons granddaughters daughters would be as interested in maintaining the site as now or whether or not they decide to sell up and something different would be would happen and indeed it was that concern which led us to uh, decide not to go back to to bruntingthorpe indeed as you probably know that's exactly what has happened mm. sadly Doncaster, on the other hand, were very welcoming indeed. We represented um, something that they were keen to do. They recognised the heritage linkage to the old RAF Finningley, V V-Force base, where uniquely all three of the V-Force aircraft types were based one one time or another. Uh, So the, the heritage linkage was very strong indeed. And the fact that they wanted us to be there really made us uh take the decision there's that was where we should remain so anyway she's there and we're fundraising
0: for our new hangar now a couple of more things so why why do you think it's important really then to share the story of this magnificent airplane
1: well i'm very keen that we keep her alive and working the uh the site of uh a piece of heritage engineering actually working is, I think, really important. I don't like the idea of of dusty, silent, still museum pieces, so it's really important to keep the heritage alive, which is one aim that we've got with the Vulcan. In terms of the story of the Cold War, that, as I think I mentioned before, is one that is vital we remember uh, because deterrence against attack is a very, very important strategy, one that remains very significant in today's world. And, of course, we've got one of the items which was used to enact the strategy of deterrence. Uh, the aircraft herself, a brilliant, innovative design containing a whole lot of new innovations too numerous to, to mention them all, but give you a couple of examples. The use of fuel transfer from fore to aft tanks to keep the center of gravity in the right place on the aircraft is a, was pioneered on uh, the Vulcan. The first use of twin spool turbojet engines in the Olympus, so some really important technical innovations. But the other factor that I think is very valuable in talking about the aircraft to the public is that these older aircraft, they're much, much simpler than the modern ones, are very much easier to explain the principles on which they operate. Uh, And that is something that we've shown to be true in talking about 558 with youngsters. So, yeah, um, really important that we keep telling the story. So, last one. Do you think you'd ever do it again? Well, um We are. I've just, uh, on behalf of, well, the Trust has just purchased another Canberra. This Canberra is based in California, but for a number of reasons, we needed a Canberra which had a fully configured cockpit. 163's cockpit has been completely stripped out and it will cost an awful lot of money to rebuild it. So we found a a Canberra in the United States. Its original UK designation was WT-327 and this has got a configured cockpit on it that we're going to bring back to the UK and fit onto 163 but the most extraordinary thing is this cockpit on WT-327 is actually our WK-163's original cockpit so we will be bringing back the original cockpit to the original fuselage.
0: So that was a bit of good fortune then. If that was the, if it's the original cockpit of one six three in, in this aircraft, or was that? Well, it's got to be a, a bit of good fortune. It's,
1: it's, that. A, it's a huge bit of um, good fortune. We were informed about three weeks ago about this auction of two cameras in the states. We had already known that what we should be doing is get a getting a, a, a sort of pre-configured cockpit from somewhere. And then we started to look at the two aircraft, XH-567 and WT-327, and very quickly discovered the fact that 327 had 163's cockpit on it. It was really quite an extraordinary
0: discovery, but um, a very good one. Excellent stuff. Well, Robert, just want to say thank you very much for your time. It's been great chatting to you. Thanks a lot, Martin. Good to talk. All right, bye now. If you'd like to support Operation Safeguard, the Vulcan to the Sky Trust appeal to raise money to build a hangar at Doncaster Sheffield Airport, please visit vulcantothesky.org.